Welcome to Season 2 of One Word with me, Thomas Leamy, a podcast where guests join me to discuss one word, topic or concept from an entirely fresh perspective. As a business psychology practitioner, I help busy professionals transform their relationship with stress, resulting in higher performance, better results and clearer minds. Visit my new website, leamy.co, where you can book a workshop or simply use the code one word for 15% off digital products. Thank you for joining me. Let's begin. Dr. Judy Sedgman's passion for more than three decades has been nurturing people's natural peace of mind, resilience, and well-being through a groundbreaking understanding. Simply put, she believes that understanding the principles behind psychology help us realize how we are creating our own experience and how we can find perpetual access to ease within us. Through her work as a facilitator, speaker and mentor, Judy makes it easy for people to quiet their minds and experience their own insights while getting in touch with innate health and resilience. Judy, a longtime student of Sydney Banks, also co-produces the superb Psychology Has It Backwards podcast with Christine Heath. She continues to support practitioners, mentees and coaches, as well as veterans and many other groups through her dedication and work. Judy Sedgman, you are so welcome to the One Word Podcast. Thank you for agreeing to be a solo guest. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm privileged to be here. And you're also a record breaker because you're the first person ever to be on the One Word Podcast twice. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, in our, in our brief discussion before we start recording, I feel very excited about where we'll go with this one word, because our one word today is peace. And I want to open the door by asking you, we all know the feeling of peace, but where does it come from? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, when we know the feeling of peace, it almost always occurs at a time when we're in a very reflective state of mind. Uh, very few people feel totally at peace when they're in the middle of doing stuff, even if they're happy and content and comfortable and all of that. You know, peace is a is a very deeply spiritual feeling, and. I think at that point, it becomes obvious that it comes from us. It comes from within us and it's natural to us. And, you know, as Sid Banks told us again and again, peace is our default setting. It's where we go when we're not thinking ourselves out of it. And it's, it's in our, it's our innate nature to default to peace. And when you think about it, you know, we were born to thrive and survive. And without peace, you know, you wouldn't last too long if you didn't have those moments, those refreshing moments of peace. Yeah. 
I'm thinking in terms of the listeners, if someone is feeling, there's times I feel very separated from this piece that you're pointing to, how do I access it then? Yeah. Well, we all think all the time and our thinking takes form in our life. So if I'm walking down the street and I'm looking around and finding threat in strangers, you know, looking at people and going, oh, that guy looks dangerous or this woman's going to come approach me for money or whatever, I'm not going to have a very pleasant walk. Even if nobody bothers me, you know, because I'm living in a world in which at any moment this could happen. It's in my head. It's not on the street. But in my in my understanding of reality, it is on the street. And I was just lucky. So as we go through life, we're always making up our experience of real things. And as we make up our experience of real things, we tend sometimes to the negative without even realizing it, to to the things that scare us, to the things that worry us, to the things that uh, are not in the present moment, you know, bringing ideas from the past into the present or whatever. And so we we think ourselves away from our natural default state of mind. We just do. And, and that's part of humanity. That's part of the whole process of being a thinking human being. But as soon as we understand that we're creating our own reality and that what we feel is what we see, it's not what's out there. <laughs> what's out there is kind of neutral information about life and everybody's experience of it is different. And I and I think that's the first level of, in my mind, I, there are levels to how you find peace, but the first level of experiencing peace is recognizing that I'm making this up. I'm looking out there and I'm making up all this stuff depending on the state of mind I'm in or what thoughts I'm taking seriously. And it's not true, it's just what I think. And so is everybody else. See, that's the key. So we get, uh, it's like we, we, we get at cross purposes. I mean, I'm always surprised, like in, in, in thinking stupid stuff, like being in the grocery store behind somebody in line and the cashier hits a wrong button and there's two cents, you know, difference. Like they pressed a four instead of a two. And, and the, you know, the eagle eye of the person's watching the numbers show up on the little screen. It's going like, you just put in the wrong, that's you, you just overcharged me by two cents. You know, what are you trying to do? Are you just, you know, you add a little bit here and there and then you, and they'll go off on this big tangent. And the poor cashier who's probably a high school student is standing there going like, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I can subtract it. But the person in their own mind has got this sort of paranoid fantasy going and it happens so fast. And it ha- you have to, it's kind of like when you realize how quickly our thinking takes us from one reality to the next, we're always one thought away from an entirely different feeling and experience about life, that it happens so fast that when we take every thought we have seriously, we really are never at peace because we don't know where it's coming from. We think, oh, life just is terrible. You know, because every time I go out, I run into these terrible people or whatever, you know, it's whatever we're, we're thinking about. 
So to me, the concept of separate realities, the understanding that I'm making up mine and you're making up yours and they're making up theirs and and people see things very differently and it's okay. It's just the way life is. And there's no point arguing with another person's reality because they love theirs as much as we love ours. You know? It's like we think for some reason, oh, well, I see it this way. Why doesn't everybody else see it my way? I'll just talk them into it. Well, they're all thinking the same thing. You know, so so uh, that is, I, I would say that not understanding the role of thought and the, and the power of thought, I mean, it's an incredible power because when you think about it, it's sort of like having brakes on your car. You know, when you discover that you can stop on a dime, it, it changes your safety when you're driving. It's like, oh, I don't have to worry too much because if something changes in front of me, I can stop, you know, I can pull over, I can do this. Well, we're driving our life via our thoughts. And when we realize I'm in charge of me, I don't have to take any thought seriously. If my feeling state is going down and I'm feeling tense or angry or frustrated, I can just put the brakes on and go, you know, I'm leaving those thoughts alone for a second and see what else comes to mind. And there's great power in taking back that agency over right. our Absolutely. experience. And I kind of see it like spotlighting a thief, you know, <laughs> like you catch the thought and <laughs> then you have a new choice what to do. Yeah. It's, right. it's so liberating, I guess, is the word. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I like that. Judy, the, you said the first level is mm -hmm. separate realities. So yeah. it, beg, it begs the question, what comes next? Okay. Well, the next step, when you start to see that you're making up your own reality, it gives you some sort of peace, some, some separation from your own most depressing thoughts or upsetting thoughts. But... The next step is to see psychological innocence. Um, and I think that this is a, this is a, people don't recognize that psychological innocence means it's, it's fine that people are thinking whatever they think and they're doing the best they can at that level of thinking in that moment. And so are you, so are you part is easy to miss, you know, and Psychological innocence is not, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you're letting people off the hook or you're making excuses for bad people or no, you're not. It's not like they people shouldn't be arrested if they commit a crime and it's not like people shouldn't be accountable. But the whole, I mean, you have to realize the whole system of justice would change if everybody understood that people who commit crimes are in a very low state of insecure thinking and desperate to cling to some sense of control over their life. And, and they don't, they're not, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say because people get upset about it, but you, there's not like they're evil people. There are people who are plagued by their own evil thoughts because their thoughts frighten them and they live in a state of constant insecurity. If the prison system understood that, and I think it's been proven now by the number of three principles practitioners gone into prisons and 
change people have changed dramatically. If if they understood that and they said, okay, everybody that comes into prison is going to have an opportunity to earn, to see and and earn their freedom while they're in prison, they'll find freedom of thought. And then when they're released, they'll be safe. And even if they stay in prison, they won't be dangerous to themselves or others, and they might do something productive. Because as soon as people understand, I mean, this is so powerful. This is like, it's amazing to me that the world hasn't grasped it yet. Because when you see, oh, the reason that I yelled at my child was because I was entertaining angry thoughts and I lost sight of my child's innocence. Child just didn't know they, that's the best they could come up with at the moment, you know. So pour the milk at, on the dog, you know. It's like, and uh, I didn't need to yell, but I I reacted to it, and it's my thinking, not the child. And then you can teach your children, you know, try not to do things when you're upset. Understand what an upset state of mind is. You know, it's just it's very simple, but out of that simplicity would come an, an, an extraordinary change in how we interact with people and how we forgive ourselves for things that we do and learn from them rather than trying to bury them or pretend we didn't do them or defend them or regret them. So peace comes from within. Yeah. To people who would be saying, I know that, Judy, okay, that yeah. makes sense. But how do we bridge the gap between knowing that and yeah. embodying it? Well, there's, you know, if you, uh, anybody that's listening to this who has ever read like Second Chance, its first book, he makes a big point about knowing little, all little letters and knowing in all caps. So there are a lot of things that we know intellectually, but we don't know them in our soul. And so there's knowing, and then there's knowing, you know, <laughs> So knowing is when it's true to you. It's absolutely true. It's not like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Or, yeah, I get that point. It's, it's, that's a very superficial intellectual understanding. Now, it's, there's no harm in having an intellectual understanding of that. But the realization that, oh, my God, that's a truth about life. That is absolutely the way it is. It's true for me. It's true for you. It's true for the worst people in the world. It's true for the best people in the world. We're all doing the best we can at the level of understanding and the thinking that we're doing. And as soon as there's widespread realization of that, like, for example, going back to the concept of prison, um, years ago, Kathy Casey in California did um, work in the, in, um, the, essentially the lifers, people who were in prison for life, they're never going to get out of prison. There's no parole. There's no, yeah. And those are, that's a very difficult population usually because they're, they got, what have they got to lose? <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> and she, she presented at a conference, she presented a video and these guys are all bulked up and they're tattooed and they're, you know, they're real tough looking people. And, you know, they're kind of scary until they start to talk. And one of the guys, I'll never forget this, they were talking about how they changed when they realized how thought works and realized what was going on in their own minds and forgave themselves so they didn't have to 
be tough and defend the fact that they murdered somebody. You know, they realized psychological innocence. I wouldn't have done it if I'd known better. Um, I wouldn't do it now, that kind of thing. And one of the guys said, you know, Kathy, um, I, I wish you would offer this um, training that you've done for us to the guards because they're really stressed out and they're afraid of us. And, you know, we can feel it. And we try to, you know, we're trying to let them know that, no, we've changed, you know, we, it's okay. But, you know, I think it would really help. And I'd love, because they, these people have to go home to their families. And you, I just hate to think that they're going home stressed and upset and scared. Now, this is a person who's in prison for life. And now he's worried about the guards. And that's, that's what changes when people know <laughs> all caps they know it in their heart in such a way that it, it opens their heart to being a part of the human race to being connected to people to caring not only what happens to themselves but what happens to other people judy my mind is going to the macro level zooming out so yeah. if we if we think of the geopolitical situation in europe at the uh -huh. moment it's almost hard to know where to start in terms yeah. of of uh, peace in in places where it feels so sparse. So, well, let me ask you the hard question: Where yeah. do we start? Where where would we start in those situations? Well, it's of course in the case of war, it's always better if it was achieved before somebody started a war. But <laughs> you know, once a war starts, you know it's. I, it's funny because I was just watching the news earlier this morning before we uh, got together, and um, there was a very disturbing report about a, a torture house that was discovered in Ukraine when the Ukrainian army took over a, a town that had been held by the Russians. And they found evidence of just unspeakable torture, and people who lived in that town said they were always screaming and cries of despair coming from that house, and they were frightened by it. Now, that's the kind of, when that's a widespread, when that look makes sense to a lot of people in an army, um, you know that they're, they're, they're not living in a peaceful state of mind. They're not, they're not even close. They're not even rational, you know, because that's horrible. Now, somehow somebody had the common sense in, in, previous wars to create rules of war, which I've always found kind of amazing that we have to have rules of war, but it does prevent that kind of thing. If people are taught that, if they're taught, look, you know, there's, there's, there is a possibility that we would be at war and people will, lives will be lost, but we don't need to hurt people. You know, we don't need to torture them. We don't need to make their lives, you know, innocent civilians don't need to die, that kind of thing. But that's a, that's just a very, low level of the best you can do when you're already going to war. But the thing is, in this case, something's got to end for us to get a fresh start. You know, once people have gone down that path, they, there's hatred and, and despair and anger and retribution and all these terrible thoughts that occur to people when they're insecure and they're afraid of losing. So I can't say that the answer to uh, that the th three principles, they are the answer to preventing war, but they're not the answer to ending war. Somebody has to have an insight that that says, 
okay, here's a reasonable way that we can get these people to back off and then we'll try to calm everybody down. And so it would be unreasonable to say, well, gee, if we sent a bunch of three principles practitioners into Russia and Ukraine, you know, the war would stop because it's, it's, it's beyond, you know, beyond that at this point. Although, you know, some, some of my colleagues might say, no, why would you be unhopeful about that? I don't know. But honestly, there wouldn't be war. You know, th this is interesting. There was a, uh, a, again, something I saw a documentary about, but there was a group in Israel that started a camp for Israeli and Palestinian children between the ages of nine and 12. And they just didn't make any, they just, kids could register and go to this camp. It was free and it was a lovely camp and they did, you know, camp things that kids do fun swimming horseback riding games you know hikes and they didn't make any effort to separate the Israeli and Palestinian children they were just children so they came to camp and we're all kids we're going to do kid stuff at camp and there was no discussion whatsoever about differences and these kids became fast friends and even though they were old enough to know in the back of their minds that there was dislike and tension between their parents on both sides the kids just couldn't not be friends once they got to know each other in in fun and lightheartedness and play and and just seeing that you know what how much they had in common now that to me the answer to and it takes me actually to the deeper point the answer is for humanity to wake up to the fact that we're not that big a deal. You know, it's like all the things that you think about the trivial things that people will fight about that, you know, in retrospect, you go like, why, you know, who cares if your property is two inches, my, your fence is two inches into my property. I mean, who cares, but people do care when they're insecure. So once we realize, you know, that at, at the very deepest level, we are all just part of creation. You know, the principles are about the creation of existence. So, and it's universal. It, it's about the creation of stars and galaxies and microcosms and tiny things and big things. And it's infinite. Creation is infinite. That's infinite is a hard concept for people because, but it is, you know, that's infinity is the creation is is like a it's never never ending so we're just a part of it and the energy of life that powers the stars and the plants and the animals and the streams and the rivers and all the things that move and and flow and change and and go through life is the energy that we use to create our thoughts and live our lives and have our reality and we're born with this gift. We can create the reality that we want to have. But when we start taking things personally and, and getting serious about, you know, what's mine is mine, what, you know, and you can't have it. And we make a big deal about these little things in life that we could think anything about. Um, what happens is uh, it, it we get this sense of importance that is uh, kind of crazy because it kind of spoils the beauty of life. I mean, we're when you think about it, 
human beings haven't been on the on in the universe that long, you know, not only on earth, but in the universe at all that long. And we could suffer the fate of many creatures and just disappear as a species. And, and we could do it to ourselves. And sometimes it looks like we might, but we don't have to, you know, we have the, we have the free will to change our thoughts and look at life differently and start to appreciate the, the oneness of all living things. And instead of seeing the differences as being important. And, you know, Sid used to talk about the isness and the allness and people thought it was kind of weird and hippie thing, but the isness and the allness is just to say, you know, don't, don't get uh, too carried away with how great you are because you're just a part of something huge and mysterious and infinite and mystical. And you can enjoy your part of it or not. It's up to you because you have free will. And that's a kind of higher order of existence than say weeds that grow if the sun is bright and the soil is free and nobody pulls them. But you know, they they don't have the free will to say, I think I'll just move over there, you know, so we're no, they won't find me. We have the free will. That that that's a that's a beautiful thing because if you want peace, you can have it, you can create it. And you can also see the potential for it in all other people. And you can you can inspire it by the just the feeling that you live in. And we we're not condemned to the struggle and strife that we go through. We bring it on ourselves and 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 we could stop. It's like when the Berlin Wall came down, it was a very interesting time. And there was a, yeah, I don't know. I think this is true because I've been told it by a historian, but so there were, there were troops, there were East German troops guarding the wall. And if anybody approached the wall on the East German side to try to climb the wall or get over to West Germany, they would be shot. So what happened is thousands of young, mostly young East Germans all rushed the wall and the troops are up in their guard towers and they're there and they're calling headquarters to get, what are we supposed to do now? There's, there's so many of them. Are we going to shoot them all? I mean, we can't. and nobody gave the order. So these people that were the guards were human beings. They had kids, you know, they had families, they had brothers and sisters, and they're looking at these young people celebrating as they started to tear down the wall and they just let it happen. Because something touched something deeper than, you know, my job is to shoot people if they go near the wall. What a crazy concept, you know, and the wall came down. Everybody thought that wall was going to be there for years and years and years and years and years. And people said, then we don't want a wall. Now, that's a moment in time when something deeper than politics and orders and whether you're breaking the law or not and all these things when something the idea the 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 desire for freedom and celebration and connection to our brothers and sisters on the other side of the wall was more powerful the idea of not killing people for innocently seeking their happiness was more powerful than anything else and that's within us it's within us and sometimes in moments it gets realized as you said, Judy, 
if you want peace, you can have it. I think yeah. it's, you know, I've also never heard anyone speak so eloquently about potential species extinction as <laughs> um, you just have as well. Final question yeah. before we leave it there. Do you have a, a personal example you can give me of the impact of knowing, and mm. I use capital letters, peace in your own life? Yeah, I do. I probably have a lot of them, but the one that comes to mind for me is that um, when when my I was had been involved with the principals for a couple of years, I guess, and my daughter as a teenager, um, her dad was very invested in her going to a private school because he went to private school for high school and loved it. And he thought she would like it and she would get a better education. She was a very smart girl. And, you know, we wanted to nurture her capacity. So, um, but she didn't like it. And she made it known to us when she came home for her first Christmas break that she didn't want to go back, that she didn't like it. She thought the girls were snotty. She didn't like being in an all-girls school. She wanted to go back to regular high school where her friends were. And, and uh, she, was, she would study. She would do fine. And she, she made very reasonable arguments. And um, her dad said, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. you got to give it at least a year. So... He sent her back, you know, we took her back to school. I was kind of wanting to keep her home, you know, to be honest with you. But anyway, so she got increasingly angry and, you know, the communications we were getting from her were not at all like her. And uh, we, we, we didn't know, I guess I was just lost. I didn't know what to do. And, and my husband kind of took charge and, and, um, you know, just said, we'll just tell her she's got to stay the rest of the year and then we'll talk about it this summer. So she ran away from school and uh, she had, we had put money in a, a bank up there for her to, we trusted her. She was good with, you know, money and everything. She wasn't going to just spend it all because it was there. So we put money like $500 for the semester for her spending money and going to movies and plays and things. Well, she emptied her bank account and she disappeared. And uh, and she would disappeared for, uh, we didn't hear anything from her and the school was extremely uncooperative and basically let us know that she would not be welcome back. And, um, and we ended up, uh, and then they told us that she had been seeing a psychiatrist up there. So I called at the willing of the school. So I called the psychiatrist who first he wasn't going to talk to me because, you know, patient confidentially. I said, look, my daughter's missing and you will talk to me. You know, I'm sorry. I'm going to call you every five minutes until you talk to me. So he said, well, I hate to tell you this, but you, your parenting has been very destructive to your daughter and she's quite dangerous. And if she does come home, if you do get her back, uh, she needs to be hospitalized immediately. Well, at that time, uh, and that terrified me because I'd been working with Dr. Pettit, you know, that's who was my mentor when I first learned this because I was in the medical management business and he was a client actually. And uh, and I just freaked out. And I, I mean, I totally freaked out. 
this was just more than I could deal with, you know, as my, my only child, my wonderful daughter that I adored and she, God knows where she was and nobody knew where she was and, and not know how far she could have gone on $500. And, and, you know, I, I imagined everything that you can ever imagine that a person could, you know, what could happen to a child on her own, you know, God knows where. So, um, I, it's really funny. I mean, it, this, it worked out that, that, uh, she ended up calling somebody that was a friend of the family who sent her money for a plane ticket. She'd gone to New York city and got very frightened herself and checked into a hotel and locked herself in a room. <laughs> and so it, it wasn't, you know, she wasn't in as much, she was in danger, but she wasn't in as much danger as I had imagined. But I didn't know that, you know, when, when she came home and the friend said, look, I'll pick her up at the airport and I'll bring her to your house and then I'll leave immediately because I don't know what, you know, what it's going to be like, but she's pretty upset and pretty angry. And so when she came, when she was on her way home, when I knew she was on her way home, I called Bill Pettit and I said, you know, now what am I going to do? And he said, what? What kind of question is that? He said, Judy, you're her mother. You love her. You'll know what to do. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to trust that. I was a little distrustful, but, you know, I, was, I went in my heart. I said, okay, I'm her mother. I love her. I love her. She's my baby. So she comes to the house and she's you know, unkempt and dirty and what you can imagine a person for three days, it's been, you know, on her own. And, and she's angry and she starts screaming at me about all the terrible things that I did as a mother and all the mistakes that I made and everything. And all of a sudden I saw, and I really mean this, I'm looking at this child, just losing it, you know, screaming at me about how terrible I was. And I saw her in her crib when she was a little baby, when she would get upset and, you know, how babies get in little tantrum states sometimes and their little arms are flailing and their face turns red and, and, you know, they get screaming and they're crying. And then, you know, you dangle a toy in front of them and they go, oh, <laughs> and I, I, I had this incredible moment of absolute peace that she was fine and I was fine and this was going to be fine. And I've never felt, I mean, I, it happened like I was terrified and angry and upset and didn't know what to do. And all of a sudden I was like, no, I love her. She's fine. I'm fine. This is going to be fine. And so as soon as she stopped to take a breath, I said to her, you know, honey, I'm sure it's been kind of a tough three days. It certainly has for us. And, you know, why don't you just go down to your room and take a nice shower and take a bath if you want and get some rest, you know, and take it easy and kind of calm down and you'll be, you'll be better. And we don't have to talk now. And she looks at me and she says, mom, is that you? <laughs> Cause she was geared up for a battle, you know, like, how could you do a thing? And the funny thing was, um, I said, yeah, it's me. Don't worry about it. So as she's walking down the hall, she says to me, well, okay, mom, I'm just telling you, I'm going to live in my room. She had kind of a, where the guest suite was. She had a room and a bathroom. You know, when she was a teenager, we let her have that. And um, 
She said, I'm going to just live in my room and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just come out and forage for food. When you and dad aren't home, I'll find something in the refrigerator. I don't want to spend time with you. And I said, well, whatever, don't worry about it right now. Just take a bath and relax. And then I remembered that the psychiatrist had said she had to be hospitalized and also that I had to call the police and let them know that she was home and they were, and he had told the police, so they were going to come and get her if I didn't do something about it. So I called Bill Pettit back and I said, you know, can you see her like today? And it was already late afternoon. He said, sure, I'll stay in the office until you get here. So she took a bath and she, you know, I could hear her in her room just kind of puttering around. And I, I went and I told her, I said, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't, I hate to bring this up right now, but I gave her the name of the doctor in Connecticut. And I said, I did talk to Dr. So-and-so. And she said, you did. Oh, and I said, no, no, it's okay. But he's told the police that you need to be hospitalized and I don't want that to happen. So you're going to have to see Dr. Pettit because you need to have a psychiatrist say you're safe. So otherwise they're going to take you. She's like, I don't want to see him. He's your client. I said, I don't care whether you want to see him or not. I trying to keep you from having to go to the hospital. So she did see him. And he, of course, you know, said she was didn't need to go to the hospital. And after she had talked to him for an hour, you know, I said to him, well, doesn't she need to see you more? You know, you know it's just like this. Because he said, well, fine, go home and have a nice evening. And uh, he said, well, if she wants to, I'd be happy to see her. She's fine. But she, if she'd like to. And she said, yeah, I'd like to talk. To, I was interested in what you're talking about. And so we went out to the front desk. It was, everybody was gone. It was late after hours. And so he could go to the appointment book and make a couple of appointments for her. And on the way to the front desk, she said, hey, mom, I'm starving. Can we stop for Chinese food on the way home? And, you know, this feeling came over me like, this is what this has all been about. This is what it's all been about. Because when, as soon as I found that piece, I absolutely knew without any shadow of a doubt, no matter what she was doing, no matter what crazy stuff she was spewing at that moment, that she was fine and I was fine and the world was fine. And it was. The power of peace. <clears throat> wow. Dr. Judah Sedgman, we're going to leave it there for today. But Thank I really so appreciate your wisdom and your words on this podcast. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And I really appreciate being on your podcast. And I wish you the very best in everything. Thank you for joining me on the One Word Podcast. And I hope that you found today's conversation thought-provoking. Feel free to check out my new website, Limi.co, where the code one word gets you 15% off digital products site-wide. That's all folks. See you next time.